My name is Shirin Razavian. I have published five books of poetry in Persian and English. My work has been featured in many literary magazines like Poetry London, Index on Censorship, Exiled Writers Magazine, The London Magazine, Agenda, and Persian Book Review, and many others. And I am one of the judges on the Jale Esfahani Poetry Prize, currently also work with Exiled Writers Inc. in the editorial committee for their e-magazines, and have been a member of Exiled Writers Inc. for almost 20 years. I've also worked with the Iranian um, writers in exile in their management committee and in uh, Iranian Penn Center in exile as well, also in the editorial committee before. Welcome to Refugee Radio. started writing poetry uh, when I was nine years old um, and by the time I was 11 um, the revolution in Iran happened. What used to be a relatively westernized country where women were free to wear what they wanted and have jobs like fighter pilots and surgeons and so on and so forth. It went to a highly religious, closed and kind of a fanatic country where women were not allowed to sing solo or even to the extent that we couldn't, as a teenager, I couldn't, we, as girls, we couldn't really eat an ice cream outside on the street. So this affected me deeply and um, I spent all of my teenage years in an atmosphere which wasn't unlike uh, George Orwell's 1984, mm. really, where everything was banned. So due to all of that, I just wrote about social themes and about injustices that I witnessed, um, the oppression, lack of freedom of expression, uh, where 16-year-olds would be brutally executed for just possessing a flyer from an opposition group. So all of that affected my work, which is why my work has, as you noticed, has social, strong social themes. And in those days, if you, if you actually wrote about social themes, it would automatically be considered to be political. Um, so eventually my parents decided to get me out of the country and send me to London. So let's talk about resistance. So this is a collection of 20 different chapters, one for each year that Exiled Writers Inc. has been running for. Could you tell me what is Exiled Writers? Yeah, so Exiled Writers Inc. Um, is basically a an organisation that brings together writers from repressive uh, regimes and war-torn situations. And um, they basically um, equally work with migrants and exiled poets and writers. And um, what they do, they provide a platform for their 
um, exiled voices, basically, exiled writers to um, produce their work, to present their work and um, to publish their work. And um, as, an, as a community also, it puts a lot of poets from different countries in touch with each other. So they hold uh, evenings of poetry once a month in, uh, in the Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden, and they hold a lot of um, different poetry readings for different causes. And sadly, of course, the Poetry Cafe evenings aren't happening at the moment because of the, the current lockdown, but they are, yes. um, they are quite special. It's quite an intimate venue, but they have very varied bill, the Exiled Writers' Evenings. There's always something completely different and a real mixture of you know, poetry, sometimes have music as well. You know that Dr Jennifer Langer is the founding director. I met her about 20 years ago, nearly, just, just after they had started. And since then, we've sort of worked together on and off. Uh, I would have liked to do more work, but obviously I'm always short of time because I, I um, hold a full-time job as well <laughs> and a family. So when I first came to London, even though back in Iran, I studied um, Persian literature and, and uh, psychology. But when I came to London, because I wasn't a refugee and I didn't have any financial backing, I ended up um, studying uh, finance and accountancy. So I currently work in, in a reputable firm as, um, as a qualified accountant. But I always had the left brain and I always had a head for numbers as well. So I don't think there's any contradiction between uh, being a, ma a mathematician or an accountant and at the same time being quite creative. As you know, Omar Khayyam was a, a profound mathematician and at the same time a profound poet. So it's, it's not impossible to do and it doesn't hold a contradiction uh, what it does do which is quite a shame is that it obviously it takes up a lot of your time that you could have otherwise um, devoted to to your poetry but you know in Iran poetry is, is is a very high form of art and people have a lot of respect for poets for you know well-known poets um, but Still, I would say it's apart from the old days when poets would would be paid handsomely by the kings and the you know the sultans. I don't think even now in Iran, you know, poetry can be a full time job for for someone to live off. So the book is entitled Resistance, and what's your chapter about? The one that your poems are included in that chapter is about violence against women. My poem uh, titled Romina is about an, uh, a 13-year-old Iranian girl who was sadly uh, murdered by her father as, and she's one of the latest cases of honor killings in Iran. And the very terrifying thing for me was that her father actually researched, it, it came to light later on that her father actually researched on the internet the, the legal consequences of actually murdering his daughter. And he actually researched how many years he might end up going to prison. So it was completely premeditated and decided he decided to um, kill his daughter. It's chilling, isn't it, um, that, that something like that could even be possible? Um, and uh, for those uh, listeners who, who aren't familiar with them, um, this, uh, the concept, can you explain what uh, an honour killing means? 
So an honor killing is when, let's say, the daughter has done something that is considered to have brought shame onto the family. So in a lot of religious cultures, particularly in in a Muslim culture, but you know it can happen in other cultures as well. Let's say if the daughter has been seeing a man that she wasn't expected to to see out of the wedlock or anything else could actually bring that sort of behavior about. And sadly, she became a victim of that. Like back in Iran, there's this woman who um, all she did, a, a young woman, I think she's in her 20s, I think. And all she did was she was basically, she had an Instagram account and she was dressing herself up and sort of putting some kind of uh, makeup on to make herself look like different people. So it was very theatrical and very harmless, really. And she got 10 years in prison for just doing that. In terms of being in exile, it's it's easy for some people to, you know, to look at the new place and the new society that they live in and forget about all of that. So it depends on how, how you are as an exiled poet. Uh, whether you are still engaged with what goes on back in your original motherland or whether you've completely moved on and, you you know, you don't think about that anymore. And obviously it's, it's still very affecting for you, the story of people like Romina, um, that these things are still, are still in this day and age happening. I wanted to ask about the, uh, the, the, the title of the book, uh, Resistance, and whether that um, resonated with you as a as a title, and what you thought about that about that concept in relation to uh, poetry, perhaps as a as an act of resistance. Poetry is is actually one of the most one of the I mean, poetry and arts are one of the most prolific ways of of resisting against anything that uh, breaches human rights, breaches your freedom of expression. I think um, poetry and art is you can you can see it in the work of a lot of great poets in in the world that what actually inspired their poetry was resistance against some kind of injustice against some kind of oppression and uh, the title completely resonated with me because for years and years what we've done through our poetry and as women we have shown resistance against all of these injustices. If you look at the Iranian women, they have put up a tremendous fight against all the pressures of, you know, that, that, that are put on them against women in Iran. And um, resistant, resistance as a title really resonates with me. And I think it's not just the Iranians, but a lot of, the writers who I meet in Exiled Writers Inc. Um, a lot of them have stories to tell, whether they're from African countries, whether they're from um, Arabic countries, um, um, or wherever they come from, they always invariably have fled some kind of, um, you know, some kind of oppression and some kind of um, issues that they've had to resist against. So yes, the title really does resonate with me. Yeah, in the context of the chapter being about violence against women and, you know, an act of resistance against that, partly something like um, a poem such as Romina, ensuring that she's remembered 
and that it's remembered and that more people are aware of what's happening and can, you know, ensuring that it's condemned. But it's, it's quite um, difficult because, you know, one of, one of the things about exile poetry is that um, the first and foremost is that there is a lot of nostalgia attached to post-exile poetry, depending on, um, obviously, whether the poet was exiled or, or migrated on his own accord, uh, depending on what trauma or separation they have endured. Um, that leads to varying degrees of nostalgia, um, which in, in its truest form, it can be really appealing in poetry, but it can also, after a while, grow tiresome if, if you just keep repeating it. And another big challenge of being an exiled writer is translation. Translating poetry is, is a mammoth task. And it's so difficult to ensure that the soul of the poetry is not lost in translation. And it's so important um, and often not fully achieved. Um, that it's very difficult to capture cultural innuendos and intricacies and what goes on in, in the country and behind the, the poem uh, that is more often more important than the actual poem itself. So, yeah, it's, it's good that the poem also resonates with the word resistance. Romina is lying in a pool of crimson. A sickle has pierced her heart. Withered white wings of an angel, smeared with blood, as though she has been visited by the angel of death. The sickle glimmers in the moonlight as 13 years of innocent life drain away one by one. Thirteen doves fly away with blood-stained wings. Romina was a good student. Romina was a kind daughter. The sickle belongs to her father. The blood had to be shed to restore honour, to wipe away the shame she has bestowed upon her family. Romina's body is now purified to be honorably prayed for and buried. Romina's tears still glistening on her pale cheeks. Romina's honor is restored. Thank you. to the Refugee Radio program. That was Faramaz Paivar, the Santor master from Iran. Today we're talking to Shirin Razavian, a poet who writes in English and Persian. And earlier you heard her poem uh, about Romina Ashrafi, the 14-year-old victim of an honor killing in Iran earlier in 2020. We're talking to Shirin today about a new publication entitled Resistance, Voices of Exiled Writers, an anthology of writing celebrating 20 years of Exiled Writers, Inc., an organisation supporting refugee and migrant poets. 
Coming up in a little while is a special reading of another poem by Shirin entitled Grey Morning. Do you know uh, what the poem was, your, your very first poem when you were nine, you started uh, writing poetry? Um, it was a poem in Farsi. I don't think it had any significant at the, uh, significance at the time because I don't remember the poem itself, <laughs> to be honest. But I do, um, I do remember that I wrote that poem and my uh, parents, because my, I came from a um, literary family back in Iran. My great-grandfather was, uh, was a famous poet in Iran um, called Maftoun Hamadani. And then my grandfather from my mother's side also was a published poet called Masrur, Masrur Hamadani. So uh, this was kind of in our family. And um, when I first wrote that poem, obviously my, especially my mother was very pleased and sort of encouraged me a lot to carry on. So from then on, I just, um, became more and more interested and wrote more and more. So the height, sort of the height, I was kind of at the height of writing ghazals when I left Iran, mm. which was kind of my late teenage years, around 17 or 18. Um, and I had, by that's when I had about 100 to 200 ghazals I'd written. So, um, but I only managed to, I only got published or tried to get published when I got to London, because in Iran I had um, obviously issues being published due to the nature of my work. And was it um, was it getting published that made you feel, okay, yes, um, now I am actually a poet, or, or was it the the fact that you um, you were going you were running into problems because of your poetry before you left that made you feel okay no this is actually this isn't something I'm choosing to do this is something I I have to do this is this is who I am from the beginning I felt that was who I was and it was a part of my identity um but if your question's about leaving Iran um it the problem runs deeper than just not being able to be published uh, the problem runs um, at the level of your most basic personal freedoms. And I'm talking about the Iran of, what, 35 years ago mm. when, I, when I lived in Iran. So I think things have changed in many ways, but not changed in, in other ways. So obviously there are still a lot of issues in Iran, but probably not in the same, uh, quite in the same format as we had it, because it was the beginning of the revolution and and the revolution was very you know it was at, at its height of um at its strength was at a maximum where you know everything was banned and um even like um, musical instruments were banned so because i played this uh, musical instrument called santur and we had it in the house I was petrified of anybody finding out that I was actually, I actually owned a musical instrument, but now musical instruments are completely free. Music is free, but mm. women can't still sing solo back in Iran, which is one of the things. And so this is in the, in the seventies uh, during the, during the, the sort of early um, explosion of the revolution. And you, you weren't even supposed to have a, a Santor in the house. No, wow. absolutely. So, uh, for people who don't know uh, what a santor is, could you explain? I know the little sort of hammered dulcimer, isn't it? But um, yes. I think there's a better way of describing it. I'm not sure. 
Um, yes, so it's a string um, instrument and it has 36 yellow strings and I think 36 silver strings and um, it's very complicated. So yes, it's, it's quite difficult to explain further than that. I think it's a yeah. little bit like, um, I sometimes think of the Santor, it's a bit like a piano without the keyboard. You have to do the job instead of pressing a key and it triggers the hammer to hit the string. You have to hit the string yes. with the hammer yourself and you can't be, you can't be everywhere at once. It's quite um, a, a, quite a juggling act. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the uh, sad universality of Oyster as a title. Um, what uh, what was behind that? Um, so that was based on a poem about a, a pearl, basically. That and having said that, I, I still haven't translated um, any of the poems from that book, which is another project for me that I mm. will be hopefully when I have time I should start doing that because um, I think some of the poems in in the sad universality of oyster would work really well in English so um, the title of the book is about um, the philosophy of a pearl so when a pearl a pearl is always um, considered to be a beautiful thing a precious thing to most people and they use it for you know for necklaces and earrings and but if you think about what the pearl does to the oyster and what the pearl is to the oyster is really as a result of a grain of sand entering the oyster's mechanism and the oyster, because it feels bothered by it and it feels that it's an external object entering its body, it will start sort of um, putting these uh, calcium sort of um, things around it that will then become an oyster so the philosophy in that poem and it's a very short poem but the philosophy it um gives is that the pearl is actually the pain of the oyster so to me it's not when i think about the pain it doesn't feel like a beautiful thing anymore so that's that's the whole uh, basis of that poem and um, the rest of the poems, again, are in the same within the same themes, a bit more, maybe not quite um, entirely social themes. There's a lot more uh, poetic moments in there. And um, also there are a few love poems in there as well. So a bit more varied than some of my other work. A poem that you wanted to read out for the programme, so I'm very grateful that you've chosen to share one with us. This is entitled Grey Morning. It is, yes, yes. And this poem, a poem that I wrote in Farsi originally, but I, I much prefer my English version of it. So I wrote it in Farsi and then I translated it myself in English. And when um, I was nominated for the translation project uh, with Exiled Writers Inc. And Jennifer um, introduced me to Robert and, and Robert said, could you send me a couple of poems, the ones that you want me to work on? So one of the poems I sent to Robert was this one. And he, he seemed to really like it. And he said, this is almost perfect. I don't really need to do anything to this poem. And, he, and this was the reason he accepted to, um, to um, work with me because he really liked the poem. 
grey morning runs its cold, delicate hands over my shoulders and playfully toys with my dress. The grey morning is full of the murmurs of life, the sounds of today, voices of today, and the silent, silent pains of yesterday, which nobody speaks of. The grey morning is full of the stories of exile, the silver wings of the doves of loneliness upon the metallic sky, and the hoary smoke of the cigarettes of uncertainty over the coffee cups of unresolved questions and the dancing of the pupils of eyes that look from one face to another in search of an answer. Oh, what cold, delicate hands has the grey morning. Online at refugeeradio.org.uk and on DAB Plus and FM 97.2 on Radio Reverb in Brighton and Hove, this is the Refugee Radio Show, the programme of the Refugee Radio Charity. You can find hundreds of our previous podcasts on our website, along with information about the charity and our various community projects in the city. That was another track by the Persian Santor master, Faramaz Paivar, and I'm playing that for our special guest today, who is Shirin Razavian, a poet originally from Iran and now living in the UK. And she's talking to us today about her life and work. So if, um, if I go through my books, um, my first selection of poems in Farsi was um, published in 1995. Um, and this was uh, my first published book where I started um, writing poetry, as I said, from the age of nine and had a real fascination with the great Persian poet Hafez, which you have probably heard of. Um, and by the time I was 15, I almost knew 90% of Hafez's poetry by heart. Um, and also I used to love reading Rumi, Saadi and Ferdowsi, the great poet of um, the epic poem Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. By the time I was 15, I had written around 100 um, ghazals, which is, which is what, what you call sonnets. And I was pro proficient at the concept of meter, uh, rhythm and rhyme. And um, this, so you can see in, in my first book, which in um, the title in Farsi is Azvaje Top Hendar, which means uh, from words to thoughts. Um, so you can see in this first book, it's a mixture of ghazals and contemporary poetry. Then my second book uh, was called The Sad Universality of Oyster. And this was, a, again, a selection of uh, poems in Farsi. Uh, this book was more pointed towards modern poetry 
but it does also include 25 quatrains because I really love that format um, and I can write it well and I find it very cathartic and therapeutic to write. Um, then my third book was A Sweet Sonnet, which included 50 ghazals, again in Farsi. After that, I had, I published another um, selection of poems called Free Fall. And Free Fall was actually um, a part of a project by Exiled Writers Inc. Um, because I became a member of Exiled Writers Inc. back in the early 2000s. Um, so by then I was already well published in Persian, but Exiled Writers Inc. helped me find my voice in English through taking part in many readings and um, having my work translated. Um, so in 2008, I was nominated as one of the writers to be featured in translation in a translation project, uh, which was facilitated by Exiled Writers Inc. and funded by the Arts Council. And this is when I had the good fortune of meeting uh, Robert Chandler, who um, through Exiled Writers Inc. and uh, who accepted to co-translate some of my work for that chapbook. Um, Yes, so um, that was my first fully English um, English selection of poems. And after that, I published another book called Which Shade of Blue? Uh, this is a selection of poems in Farsi and English um, featuring my original works written in, in Farsi and, and also originals written in English and also a number of translations, which, was, um, which I did um, uh, with the help of uh, Robert. And um, this book is 255 pages, so 210 pages of Persian poetry um, in both modern format and also in the form of uh, modern sonnets, um, and also 45 pages of poetry in English. It's very long for poetry uh, volumes, normally, you know, very slim little things aren't they that's a lot yes. of poetry yeah it's a lot of poetry so I, I prefer to do like a one big selection rather than doing small small mm. um booklets and the the english poems in rich shade of blue were they written originally in english or are they pieces that were translated from the farsi yeah they were they were both so i had a few pieces that i wrote originally in english and then a few pieces that were translated by myself and a few pieces that um, was co-translated by uh, with Robert and myself. Of course, the, the question then is, what's the difference for you when you're composing something in Farsi and when you're composing something in English? In Farsi, obviously, I feel a lot more confident and a lot more comfortable writing poetry. And the format just comes to me um, naturally. So I don't decide whether I'm going to write a, a Ghazal or write a free verse or um, contemporary. Um, the, basically, I let the poem decide for itself how it's going to be. Um, so once you've got the first line or or, or the first kind of image, it, it, it sort of then evolves naturally. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, I think it was one of the German poets, was it Baudelaire, who said um, the first verse is always a gift from the gods. 
<laughs> and the rest is is done by the poet. This is true. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it happens for me as well. In English, I, I some some poems they just flow, and I know from the very beginning that this poem sounds right and sounds, you know, sounds good to my own ears. And other poems, obviously, um, not so. Um, but in any case, my my way of writing is that I never actually force myself to write. I don't write for the sake of writing, although I know that's the, the, the way in many courses, poetry courses and classes, they teach people how to write. They say, like, you force yourself to write a poem every day, at least one poem every day. And that doesn't work for me. So it's, it's completely, it has to be completely inspirational or at least in part inspirational. And I, I, can't, I can't, I don't seem to want to write when I don't actually have something to say. So it has to be something that has affected me, affected me deeply. And I have internalized those emotions and sort of processed them. And then I let them flow in the form of a poem. Translation and poetry are, uh, you know, almost um, uh, comedically ill-suited to each other, aren't they? But with the the idea of two poets working together on the poem, that's got to be as close as you can get to um, the essence of it. But of course, it's always going to be about compromises, isn't it? Because if you go for the the more literal. Uh, the translation, the, the the more damage that's done to the structure. So I wonder with something like a gazelle, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, the kind of Persian sonnets, um, I wonder if there's a way of um, translating them that retains the, the structure, or is that just simply impossible? It's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult um, to translate gazelles and keep the structure and keep the rhythm and keep the rhyme going i have done a few um, translated a few of my gazelles and i think one or two of them have come up uh, come out really well but it, it is very very difficult it's, it's much easier translating free verse mm. and contemporary poetry um i've also written one or two in the format of gazelles so with the rhyming poetry originally in english um and that works well as well it's it's kind of fun to write, but I think you can't say as much as you can say in free verse. And writing a the, the a gazelle in English, um, do you, what do you do? You find that there's things that you're missing because you're not using Farsi. Yes, because rhythm and rhyme comes naturally to me in Farsi, but it doesn't quite to the same extent in English. Mm. So it yes, it requires. Um, more effort, if you like. So again, as I said, because I, I do like to write inspirationally, um, I would, if still, even in that case, the first few verses would be just come to me as an inspiration and then you would build up on that. But it would create, um, it will require more effort to do it in English. In Farsi, it would be completely effortless for me. And it's, it's funny, when I, every time I have a poetry reading uh, with um, English audience or, or a European audience or any other country's audience apart from Iranians, and if I read one of my Farsi poems, they really like the music. And mm. I, I always get a lot of comments um, and good feedback 
about how musical um, Farsi sounds when you actually read the poem in Farsi. Another poem that you've read um, during the book launch was entitled Dying Young. Uh, Dying Young was included in another anthology a few years back, also by Exiled Writers Inc. And that anthology was uh, titled The Silver Throat of the Moon. And The Silver Throat of the Moon is actually a verse from my poem, Dying Young. So the publishers really liked that verse and decided to call the anthology The Silver Throat of the Moon. And this is um, uh, a poem that includes references to um, some place names, I believe. Uh, uh, I believe they are as uh, Esfahan and uh, Azan. Yes, so Isfahan is, is the second largest city in Iran, and that's where I was. So I was born in Tehran, uh, the capital. And then when I was uh, quite young, my uh, father, who was an engineer, uh, because of his job, he uh, moved to he moved us to Isfahan. Isfahan is a beautiful historical town, and it's it's amazing. Um, and has a lot of culture behind it, but it's also a highly religious town as well. Um, so I lived there for about 10 years, 10 to 12 years. So a lot of my um, early memories are from Isfahan and the picturesque mountains and the beautiful streets and, and mosques. And it has a lot of historical buildings, including um, Mosques, and you refer in an excellent to the uh, to the, the the navy sky of a suffocated town, and I found that quite an arresting image. I wondered what you meant by that. Is it to do with um, uh, the quality of the air, or is it to do with uh, a, a sort of the, an atmosphere of oppression? I wasn't sure. Uh, I definitely ref was referring to atmosphere of um, oppression, mm -hmm. and also the colour of Isfahan's night sky was um uh, as i remember it was never black it was always a deep shade of navy blue and it was absolutely beautiful but the suffocated town it ref it refers to the oppression at the time i felt it's it's kind of on the edge of the desert but it's it has a mountain very close to the town so from my bedroom, I could actually see the Mount Sofer, which is the, the, a very big mountain of Isfahan. And I could see the full moon right above it, like a silver coin shining right above it on the background of navy, velvety, na navy blue sky. Oh, I love it. And that's where we get the um, sweet lullabies from the silver throat of the moon. Yes. Brilliant. My friends are all dead. The souls I used to write with, sing with, the songs of freedom on the mounts of Isfahan. Those familiar smiles, knowing sparkles in their eyes, souls who knew me are now wandering at night, hovering over the blue mosques, brushing away the sound of Azan from the navy sky of a suffocated town. The sounds which throttled the songs of freedom in our minds. And why would God play the devil's advocate? Was he not merciful? Was he not kind? Did he not whisper softly in my ears a sweet lullabies of Irfan from the silver throat of the moon? 
did he not gently stroke my hair through, through the kind hands of midnight breeze? Where did I leave him behind? Where did the devil hide my merciful? In the grave of some rotten corpse of ignorance and need? In the lethargy of decayed beliefs? Or in the fire of lust and greed? My friends are dead. All beautiful and young, but through the silence of the night lives on the whisper of their song. Horizon by Aldous Harding. Before that, you heard Dying Young, a poem by our special guest today. We've been in conversation with Shirin Razavian on the occasion of the publication of a new book entitled Resistance, Voices of Exiled Writers, and that's available now from Palewell Press. You can find it on their website or from the Exiled Writers Inc. website and, of course, Waterstones and other good bookshops. Any advice for uh, other nine-year-old poets out there who are thinking about getting into this game? I think um, a lot of my poetry um, came with pain, basically. And it doesn't have to be like that. But I think a lot of art is, is um, feeds on pain and, and it flourishes as a result of um, pain. And I think that gives your work a certain um, certain quality that cannot be faked and cannot be sort of bought and cannot be learned. But um, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. So to the nine-year-old who, who writes poetry, um, I say, carry on writing, carry on observing around you and hopefully rather than seeing injustice and you know problems around you you will you will see some beautiful things that you can you know write some absolutely happy and ecstatic poetry on um you know in the words of um apollinaire uh, he says um come to the edge he said they said we are afraid come to the edge he said they came he pushed them and they flew. So sometimes the challenges of life are the best way to bring about progress. And we learn, we learn that the hard way by living through challenges. But when we come out the other end, then we are stronger for it. And, you know, we have something worthwhile to show for it. Well, that's brilliant. I'm glad I asked that question because that's a fantastic, uh, <laughs> fantastic uh, line to end on. I think that's brilliant. Shirin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming and, and talking about your work and uh, about the book and especially for, for reading one of your poems live on air for us as well. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you so much. Lovely meeting you.
This has been another production of the Refugee Radio Charity. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>